Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that even the books that often churches may not often look at are given for our benefit, are given that we might know something of your beautiful, glorious character and what you require of us and what we have in the as riches in God. Lord, you have been good. We thank you for all you have taught us about the sinfulness of our sin, the need for repentance, and your character being full of grace, mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. May we hear your word this morning as your word. May we respond and give it the reverence that is due as being your word. Keep me faithful in my handling and explanation of your word that I might not add, take away, but do nothing more than to help us to comprehend the value of the scripture that we've already heard read. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those who have been at Eastgate for quite some period of time will know I'm quite a fan of the superior form of football known as AFL. <laughs> My team, St Kilda, a Melbourne-based team, play in Queensland once this year. It is next Saturday night at the Gabba. Who thinks it's likely that I will attend? There's quite a few hands up there. And the reason why you put up your hand, A, because I put something in the Facebook group saying I've got some spare tickets if anyone wants to join me. That offer's still open, incidentally. But you know my interest, therefore you can predict my actions. And we all know people who are passionate about all sorts of different things. And as a result of their zeal or passion about something, we can almost predict things that they will go to, things that they will do, how they will act in certain circumstances. Yet nobody has a zeal quite like our God who carries out all of his good and perfect purposes. Not just because he's able. When you look through the scriptures, especially the Psalms, you will see this refrain, the Lord of hosts. The zeal, by the zeal of the Lord, he will do this. He is passionate about the display of his glory. He's passionate about his purposes within this world. He cannot be hindered in the display of his glory and in carrying out his purposes. And I have loved, as we've preached through the book of Joel, this timeless gospel message, reminding us afresh of who we are, reminding us afresh of who our God is and how he acts to reconcile an unholy, sinful people to himself as a perfect, almighty and holy God. When we began, we looked at chapter 1, which is our Mother's Day sermon, where we saw a great devastating locust plague. A plague which God himself had sent as a means of judgment on the people because of their sin. 
And we saw how, we, how that expressed the seriousness of our sin. That the God who sent this plague that utterly took away all of their resources doesn't say, keep this a secret. He says, tell this to your children. Tell this to your children's children that they might understand the sinfulness of sin and the necessity for God to act in judgment. And because it was so serious, the priests are called to bring the people together in a solemn assembly, that they would cry out in repentance before God as their only hope. And in the final verse of that opening chapter, we saw an embarrassing comparison where it described even the beasts of the field pant for God while his own covenant people did not. As chapter 1 spoke about a coming future day of the Lord, we turn to chapter 2 which began with sound the alarms in Zion, in Jerusalem, in God's holy mountain. For it is coming. These verses describe what would happen if God's people did not repent. That God would use an army of some form under his dictation to act swiftly and strongly in a way that could not be resisted in any way at all. We see it described in no uncertain terms in verses 6 to 8 where it said, Before them the peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. It was complete. It was unstoppable. It was an army that was God's army. Now we're not actually told anywhere specifically in the book of Joel the particular nature of the sinfulness of the people. Other than the fact that they're called to return to the Lord and therefore presumably means they'd wandered from the Lord, we don't have much detail. But what we do know of the justice of our God all of the evidence was there that if he was to act in such a way as chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 describes, it would be entirely fitting. If Joel finished as God's message to mankind at chapter 2 verse 11, you would say that is a very bleak book. Totally void of hope. Then comes one of my favourite words in the Bible, yet or but. Simple word, but it is the fulcrum upon which the natural trajectory of the consequences of human sin is turned in its entirety by the intervention of God. We saw those words in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, Yet, even now, even now, toward a people who were so rebellious, 
that verses 1 to 11 in that utter decimation was entirely fitting. He says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. We saw, as we looked at that passage, returning was not a matter of external ritual. You could not secure God's favour by doing a list of religious acts to appease him. It was a matter of hearts that were torn, not the ritual of garments that were torn. But the basis of that appeal was in the character of God himself, who has revealed himself to be gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and to be done for the glory of his name, for his reputation. God doesn't exist to give us a better life. Everything he does is for the display of his character, for his glory in this world. As we see today, to be restored in repentance is the greatest joy that any human being could ever experience. Last week, there was a lot of focus on the rending of our hearts, or that last passage in Joel. And today we see the display of God's heart. We're going to see almost like a, a, a pathway from pity to restoration to praise. And then we're going to talk about restoration and satisfaction. Firstly, God's pity in verses 18 to 20. The very first word of our passage says, Then... It uniquely ties it to what has gone before in verses 12 to 17, the call to rend your hearts, to return with all of your heart. And it implies by the things that are described in these verses that the people did indeed return to the Lord wholeheartedly as they were called to do. And now the Lord has acted. Not because he was obligated because of their actions, but because it's within his character to respond in this way to a genuinely repentant people. The repenting didn't earn his favour, it's just that his character acts favourably towards the genuinely repentant. And God's action as described in this verse is based on two things. His zeal for his, his land... His zeal and his pity for his people. There's a lot of covenant language in this verse speaking of the Lord of Yahweh, his covenant name, and closely connected with his land, his people. These people who had experienced the, the judgment for their covenant disobedience. And now as they have returned to him with all of their heart, he wants to restore them to the covenant blessing. What we don't know is the time frame between chapters 12 to 17 and verse 18. Were they quick 
to pour out their hearts before God? Was he equally quick to respond? You certainly get the impression by not only from these earlier verses, but some of the other material we'll see, that regardless of how quick they were to reach that point, when they did, he was not slow in his response to them. So much of it describes what we see in the parable of the prodigal son. That when the son returns with deeply repentant in his actions toward the father, the father ties up the drawstring on his trackied axe, runs out and meets him with a hug. Yes, there's a little bit of contextual change placed in there about the trackied axe. Our God may be slow to anger, but he is swift to restore and pour out his blessings on the genuinely repentant. Look at the Lord's response in verse 19. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. He says, I am, as in I am presently already in acting in swiftness, sending you grain, wine and oil. Now, there was lots of things that they lost through the locust plague. All sorts of food matter. Yet, interestingly, as we've seen at other junctions in Joel, the focus always seems to be on elements with regards to worship. The grain and wine and oil. Things that were necessary to maintain worship that were necessary to do the daily offerings that allowed fellowship between an unholy people and a holy God. And the result, he says, you will be satisfied. Or if you have NIV or New American Standard, have you will be satisfied fully or in full. Because the word translated satisfied does mean to the full. Now, it wasn't just the return of food and wine and oil that will make them satisfied. Although I'm sure they appreciated it. I'm sure it was beneficial. They'd been without so much for so long. But it is God himself in whom they will be satisfied. To be restored in relationship with him. To have intimate fellowship with him again. To have that to the full there is nothing more satisfying to the human soul. This is how the Lord responded to the prayer of verse 17. That he would spare the people, that he would take away their approach. It says, I will restore fellowship with you and you will be satisfied. But to restore a people... Requires more than just sending blessing. The judgment also needs to be taken away. That's why verse 20 speaks about the removal of the means of that judgment. Spoken there of the northerner, where the different camps interpret that as either beating the locusts or a literal army. Whatever which way you camp you land in, it still is described in those verses as being the Lord's army that he has sent, that he directs for the purposes of his judgment against his people. 
that enemy has been removed and destroyed. God's pity, which comes out and flows out of his character, that acting for his name, for his glory, towards a genuinely repentant people, this leads to restoration. And we looked at chapter 1. The locust plague was broad in its scope. It affected the land, it affected the beasts, and it affected the people. The threatened day of the Lord in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, would describe that they would be comprehensively decimated because of their sin. Sin's effects are always wider than the individual. They are never private. Yet when we come to our passage this morning, after we've seen a threefold judgment against land, beast and people, here we see described a threefold restoration and blessing. We see fear not, firstly, to the land, fear not to the beasts, and be glad, children of Zion. And in a play of words in verses 20 and 21, we see a contrast of those who have done great things. In verse 20 it says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea, and the stench of the foul smell of him will rise. For he, that is, this enemy brought as a means of judgment, has done great things. But then in contrast to that, he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Notice the contrast? They have experienced great things. Massive things have happened in them, in their land and to themselves. It wasn't minor what they experienced. Yet the Lord who sent them can also equally say, Fear not, for I, the Almighty, I have done great, exceedingly great things. In this world, many significant things will happen to us. Great things, devastating things, massive things. But they are nothing compared to the great things that our Lord, our God does. That he can say, and he does repeatedly say throughout the scriptures, fear not. Things that he will do to every genuinely repentant soul. It is not in the heart of God ever to turn his face away from the genuinely repentant. The blessing returns to the land. We're not seeing just sort of like a, a slow environmental recovery. You know, you think, oh, this has been happened so long, it's going to take us years to recover from this. No, he says, beasts of the field, fear not. The pastures will be green. The trees will bear fruit. Not just a few years down the track. The trees will bear fruit. The fig and the vine will have their full yield. 
When God restores anything, he never does it in half measures. In verse 23, the people, they're called to rejoice and be glad. Not because they've got a a broader option of things that they could have for dinner and maybe even complement it with a glass of wine on the side now. Repentant people do not just rejoice in the absence of hardship. They rejoice in the fullness of knowing God and the riches and blessings that there are there within that. He was sending a rain, which is often, even just the language of rain is often depicted as a sign of God's blessing. And I don't want to say that it's just being merely figurative. It was a literal rain that he was sending after many years of drought and famine. But in verse 23, it's it's not just given a rain for their vindication and their righteousness. He poured it down in abundance. If you haven't already, you start noticing a trend. When God is acting, he's never doing it in half measures. He brings fullness of blessing to those who are genuinely repentant. And what does God use by means of illustrating what this abundant blessing will look like? He says, The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. He could have mentioned all sorts of elements of things that would be restored in the creation, on the land, or things that would look like. But what does he talk about? The things as, as a priority to him, about their fullness and their overflowing. Things of grain, wine, and oil. Necessary elements to restore their worship. These two provided in full and overflowing. I think it's actually been one of the favourite passages that I've preached on in a long time. In a book that many people don't even look at. Now God is slow to anger. I think we're all thankful for that one. But to a broken hearted repentant people he is swift to restore and when he restores he doesn't restore in half measures. He's not slow in restoring. He's not meager or or minimalistic in what he offers to those who come to him in genuine repentance. So despite the bad reputation the word repentance might have in society, in the Bible, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's the means which God has used to bring us into restoration to him, to experience the joy and fullness of knowing him and the blessings that he brings. But I should clarify, I am not saying repentance equals monetary or material riches. You're not going to hear that prosperity gospel in this church and you won't actually find it in the Bible either. As we turn to verse 25, it's a beautiful promise of God. Many people have produced whole sermons on this verse, which I'm not going to do. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, the great army which I have sent amongst you. Now I've listened to some really great sermons purely on that verse. Some of them were great sermons that kind of took it out of the context of which it found itself within. Some took the context and did it really well. 
There's the diverse views of what is he talking about, about the locust took. Despite all of the views, one thing we can conclusively say, whatever they took, whatever they took from physically, whatever they took from spiritually in terms of hindering their ability to worship God in the ways in which he prescribed, what God gives to his repentant children makes up for beyond anything of the loss that they'd experienced. Now, we've all had wasted years. Probably most of us, when we think about the time when we first came to faith, might think about, man, I wish I'd done that a lot earlier. I wouldn't have wasted those teenage years. I wouldn't have wasted those years in my 20 and regretted the things in which I did during that time. But Paul in Romans describes that part of God's judgment is to hand us over to our own desires. That is part of our judgment which leads us to our repentance. And in that sense, they are not wasted years. If they seek to point us back to Christ, they are not wasted years. But also too, in comparison to those who will receive an eternal reward the years of this life, by comparison, are worth nothing. We go from God's pity to restoration to praise. In verse 19, we're already introduced to the idea of being satisfied in full by God's blessings and by him. Now again, in verse 26, he says, "'You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied.'" And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. I reckon it's pretty high odds that at some point all of you know what it feels like to eat in plenty. Twimba's a really old school town. We were so surprised when we got here that A, you still had a sizzler. I know it doesn't exist anymore. And you still had a dine-in pizza hut that did the all you can eat. So if you've done that or if you've ever been in a setting or maybe even a Christmas lunch, I think odds are high at some point everyone in this room has experienced what it feels like to eat in plenty. And some of you would say, satisfied is probably not the way I would describe the way I felt on those experiences. Now I and my eldest daughter, Miller, we quite like our, our chocolate, we're quite sweet tooth. I used to go to the Sydney Easter show with our family, get all these chocolatey show bags and, and I'd enjoy my chocolate. But there's, there were times I missed the, sh- missed the fireworks because I had my head in the bowl with tile prints on my, on my knees. I wouldn't describe that as being a depictor of satisfaction. Yet to the person who delights in God, there's no such thing as having too much. To indulge in God can never be excessive. Nor does it get to a point where you think, oh, uncomfortable. It becomes increasingly satisfying the more and more you enjoy him. But God hasn't poured out his blessings on repentant people just so they would marvel at the blessings themselves. It's not so they go, wow, Look at our crops this year. Four crikey, look at the fruit, the fig, the vines and the oil. He thought you'd get four crikey into a sermon, eh? 
No, God has given the fullness measure of his blessings so that people will praise him. Or as the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism words it, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That we were designed, we were made for his praise, his glory. These were a wicked people who, with torn hearts, recognising their sin, turned to God in repentance. On the basis of his character, being gracious, merciful, slow to anger and steadfast love, and for the glory of his name, his reputation in the world. And as they do that, they find him to be swift to pour out his abundant blessings and bring joy to his people. Enjoying him in fullness, resounding in praise. Knowing that he is the Lord your God. There is no one else. There is no one comparable. So we'll speak about restoration and satisfaction. I think this is one of the, as I said, one of the favourite passages I've preached in a long time. And it kind of saddens me as a result of seeing something like this that Joel does not get preached very often. In that it's a timeless message we all need to hear. We need to hear this message to see rightly about who we are, to see rightly about who God is, to understand the wickedness of sin and the judgment that it rightly deserves, to remind us of the need for for repentance, but also to remind us of the unfathomable grace of God towards a people who will turn to him in true repentance. To see a passage like this, what comfort it would be to hear for those who have never, even for the first time, turned to God in repentance and faith. Yet they are torn in their heart because of their rebellion against him and him being worthy to receive all glory, honour and power. That they would rejoice that he's slow to anger, that we don't instantly get what we deserve. But also to find comfort to know that when we do come before him with broken hearts, we will not find him bitter and angry for what we have done but a God who is quick to restore and to bless. Not because he's an old softy, overlooked things and thought, nah, no worries, you're cute. You've you've said sorry, you've shown me some tears, I'm satisfied. No, because he has poured out his judgment against sin in its full on Jesus Christ, who stood as a perfect substitute on our behalf and by faith in him, Coming in repentance, we come to know this God who is quick to restore and quick to bring fullness of blessing to his people. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've kind of been keeping God at arm's length because of a sin that you're currently enjoying. And you've had unpleasant experiences with human beings as you've attempted to be restored to them for wrongs you've done, so you think, 
I'm just going to keep God at a distance because I remember that previous bad exchange I had with another human. Our God is not like that. Behold the character of our God we have seen this morning and simply come. To quote the psalm, Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It saves those that are crushed in spirit. Jesus in Matthew 12 quotes from Isaiah 42, A bruised reed he will not break. Every genuinely repentant person who has come to God, he receives swiftly and fully. He never turns away. He doesn't even put them on probation, saying, oh, you can have 10% until till I see whether or not you've proven yourself. God, as we have seen him today, is slow to anger, quick to restore, and willing to pour out the riches of his blessings upon his people. So come, enjoy him in fullness, the one who will not withhold himself or his blessing. Come, delight, be satisfied in him that we might naturally ring out his praises. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a comfort it is to our soul, not only to be reminded about your slowness to anger, but also your character towards those who do come before you with sincerity and repentance. We thank you that you do not treat us the way our own human hearts are inclined to treat others. We thank you that even as we look at a people who were so wicked that you would have been entirely justified to carry out what we saw described in verses 1 to 11, Yet those very same people, when they turned to you with all of their heart, did not encounter your wrath, your list of complaints. They encountered your grace, your mercy, and the abundance of your blessing poured out upon them. That they would be satisfied and satisfied in full with who you are and the joy of knowing you that their hearts, their mouths resound in praise. Do that work in us on a daily basis, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those who like to read ahead, you might think, well, I've already read next week's passage because today we were actually originally going to go through to verse 32, but um, I realised I wasn't going to fit it all in. So we're looking at verses 28 to 32 uh, of chapter 2 next week. Very